what sort of things are going through your mind when you perform CPR? There's so many complex things. Am I compressing at the right depth? Am I letting go of the chest? Am I leaning on the chest? Am I blowing too much air in? Counting the 30 compressions to two breaths. 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. Is someone coming with a defibrillator? Where is the ambulance or where are the doctors? Where are the MET team? Trying to focus on doing it properly. Two breaths. Maintaining the airway and there's X, Y and Z going on. There may be a family member there when it happens or it could be a weekend. There's not enough staff around. It's all very fast-paced, adrenaline. There's lots of different things that can interplay into the quality of CPR. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, is a must-have skill for medical practitioners. It's performed when someone appears unresponsive or isn't breathing, which is a sign they could be in cardiac arrest. The aim of CPR is to restore blood flow back to the brain and heart. And obviously, as registered nurse Felicity Dick-Smith points out, keep the person alive. You need to provide CPR in order to keep the organs alive, to keep the brain alive. As this is a life or death situation, performing CPR can be incredibly stressful for the rescuer. And as nursing student Beck Carslate notes, it's also exhausting. You really have to put your whole body weight into it and they say you should only do it for two minutes per person and then swap over because it just drains you. While health practitioners will try their very best when performing CPR, Felicity says this isn't reflected in the survival rate. So outside of hospital currently, the survival rate's only about 10%. And in hospital, it's about 20% with those statistics not really moving for the last 25 years. Those stats are pretty low, right? Yes, very low. Why? There's so many technical components. So trying to bring all of those together perfectly is challenging. But why these stats haven't changed in more than two decades, Felicity explains, is because rescuers receive little to no feedback about their performance of CPR and what they could be doing wrong. How can we measure what we're doing? How can we really know the quality of CPR we're delivering if we're not getting any kind of measurement from it? Felicity hopes this will change with CPR feedback devices. Those statistics, if we change them by 1% to 2%, that equates to around... 1,000 to 2,000 lives saved every year. Today on the show, you'll hear what these devices are, how they could boost survival rates, but also the obstacles in the way to getting these devices into CPR training. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. I tested my research with undergraduate nursing students. I got an email to my student email. It just said, we're offering first aid training. We recruited those students and then we gave them nationally accredited CPR training. And I thought, yep, that's a very useful thing to have. Run me through what the training day is like. 
So we arrive, we sit in a big circle and there's dummies on the floor. They sort of orient us to what we're going to do for the day. Watch first, then practice doing the compressions. The assessor came around and made sure we were doing them correctly and deep enough, fast enough, making sure we've got the correct chin lift and head tilt, practicing and practicing uh, until the guy running it was like, yep, yep, pretty good, you got that. So we trained them all to do basic life support. Three weeks later, they came back and we got them to perform CPR on a mannequin without any feedback. And interestingly, the majority of the students gave themselves quite a high confidence rating. Did you feel equipped and ready should you have to perform CPR in real time that you knew what to do? In a way, yes. Like, theoretically, I know what to do. But what we showed in the data, the majority of our participants couldn't perform CPR within international protocols, and the quality of CPR was actually quite poor. The research is quite well known that CPR skills do decay quite rapidly within 8 to 12 weeks of certification. So to be given national accreditation and then three weeks later still, you know, it demonstrates how inefficient CPR can be and how can people measure their own performance without any feedback. Is that indicative of there's something wrong with the training? That's also another really important question. And I think traditionally training is done in large groups. Training is done with a lecture format. It was very much just 20-something people in a room doing their own thing. And the assessor was coming around and would occasionally be like, oh, you should go a bit faster. You've got to tilt the head back further. It didn't feel as one-on-one, but it's sort of hard for them to give us that same feedback because they can only judge it by what they see. And it's usually a subjective assessment done by one person, one assessor. And so the quality of that assessment comes down to the skill level of the person doing the assessment. It comes down to the quality of the course and how it's delivered. So the point that I want to make, though, is if people are not being objectively obsessed on their ability, how can we determine that they're actually competent in CPR? And is inserting these devices into that environment an objective assessment? Exactly. And that's what my hope um, is from my research, is that we can use these devices that show individual performance and determine if you're performing CPR within the parameters set by international and national guidelines. That can then contribute to your accreditation. It's like the devices telling you everything that you're doing wrong. Yes, yeah. It's providing you with real-time objective feedback about what you are doing in real time. How does it give you that feedback? There's lots of different types of feedback devices. So there's often spoken word telling you to apply pads, check for rhythm, initiate shock, or a lot of the newer devices now have commenced compressions, too fast, too slow, not deep enough. So it has this technology within it to be able to measure the compression of the thorax and the actual rate the rescuer is going at. Other devices have an audio component, so the metronome, or this other device that I looked at, which was called True CPR, 
It also has a visual component which looks like a fan. So as you compress, you've got to hit a certain level. So there's different types of feedback devices. So part of my research was actually looking at the modality of feedback and its effect on performing CPR. So is it a graph? Is it a set of numbers? Is it an audio component that makes a difference? Or is it just a simple light on the forehead of a mannequin giving you a visual reward for achieving CPR? And what did you find? So the findings, firstly, is that we got those undergraduate nursing students to perform CPR on a mannequin with different devices as well. So they had one of the labs set up with five or six devices scattered around the room and we would go on each device for two minutes and then we'd watch all our feedback and we'd get the feedback from the um, kind of assessors, have a break for two minutes to catch our breath and then go again on another device trying to adjust our CPR based on the feedback we were getting from the devices. Do you feel like that bettered your practice of CPR having worked with those devices? Definitely, definitely. Some of them more than others. Uh, There was one, I can't remember the name, but it sat on the chest, big yellow button that you had to press. That's the one with the metronome. It had a little screen ticking away. So the true CPR device that sits on the chest that you can press and it provides you with a metronome actually resulted in the best performance by the undergraduate students. And it would count down three, two, one. You've got to go for a breath. It was like really live feedback and really specific what you needed to do and fix. A lot of the research establishes that CPR feedback devices assist in increasing the quality of CPR. However, in Australia, CPR feedback devices are not being used within training or accreditation. The Australian and New Zealand Resuscitation Council, which is called ANSCOR, they have a lot of set guidelines that refer practice within this country, and they recommend the use of CPR feedback devices within training and practice. But that's not an obligation. No, it's not an obligation. It's a recommendation. Why isn't it an obligation? I think because these devices are relatively new, they are relatively untested. It would take a significant shift in the processes and policies used to train and accreditate people, and it also take a shift in performance within hospitals and allocation of technology and integration. But unfortunately, these things can't happen without research. These devices are assistive. If they are effective in boosting the survival rates of CPR, what's to say that devices can't do it instead of humans? That's also a really interesting fact, and that leads to the device called the Lucas Compression Device. You may have seen it mentioned in the media recently with survivors talking about surviving as a result of the Lucas device. And what is the Lucas device? The Lucas is the compression device. It's a piston. There's a backboard that you place behind the patient's chest. And then there's a motor that sits on top of the chest and you 
place a suction cup over the, the sternum or the, uh, the place where we normally compress. And you press start and it will compress the chest rhythmically, automatically to the right compression rate, depth and recoil. And it will go on and on through the resuscitation. So it takes the difficult components of CPR that I spoke about, it takes those away from the resuscitation so that professionals can focus on correcting the underlying cause. I guess in that way, CPR doesn't necessarily physically need to be performed by a human. That's correct. So the chain of uh, survival is recognising that someone's having a cardiac arrest. That's a human component. Sending for help, that's also another important factor. And then there's performing compressions and ventilations. So if we can take, say, two of those big problems that we've shown that manual CPR is ineffective, if we've shown that with an automated device it is effective, then it seems a no-brainer to introduce that into practice. Are there any risks getting a device to perform CPR instead of a human? There are, actually, and the application of the Lucas device or compression devices on the patient. So there's a really important rule in CPR is initial defibrillation, but also to start compressions as soon as possible and not to delay compressions or have breaks in compressions. So if people are unfamiliar with these technology devices, they don't know how to use them, potentially there could be a delay in actually applying them and making sure they're fitting correctly on the patient so they're not going to cause any damage or um, they're actually functioning in the way that they're supposed to. So there is a human element to the application of technology But I think you could argue that this could be overcome with training and development and exposure to these types of products. How expensive are these devices? My understanding is they're around $20,000. The Lucas Lucas devices. But what I thought about was feedback devices, which are a relatively inexpensive option. So the True CPR, for example, is around $1,500 Australian. So it's a much more affordable device. So these are relatively accessible that can be integrated into training and accreditation to ensure that people are learning how to do good quality CPR because how can we really say that the Lucas device is always going to be available? It might not. You may be in a football stadium waiting for an ambulance for five minutes. Well, you can't just stand there and not do compressions. It needs to be done. So we need to go back to grassroots and look at How are we teaching CPR? How are we accrediting CPR? And making sure that people are learning what it feels like to do good quality CPR in the first place. So to create that foundational learning and concrete in that feeling of what it takes to achieve those parameters. And then hopefully the Lucas device and things like that can be integrated into practice. But as with anything, technology is amazing, but it's not always available. And when it doesn't work, What do we do? We have to rely on ourselves. Not nearly a fraction of the people that learn CPR would get access to these devices so they don't know that they're practising wrong. Maybe they're practising very ineffectively. Do you think that should be something that's required? Definitely, definitely. I found for me it was really good knowing my feedback and... I've seen some people even just when we were doing that training 
I could see they weren't getting deep enough in their compressions or they were going a lot slower than they should have been. Having so many more people get access to these devices and get that feedback on their training would make it so much more effective. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Digital Futures. And we also have a website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.